What did you talk about, Monsieur Philabin? About tonsils. Hello and welcome to season four of How Would Lubitsch Do It, a podcast in which we discuss the works of director Ernst Lubitsch, one film at a time. It's 1932, and Kryn Gabbard joins us for yet more discussion of Trouble in Paradise. Come visit ErnstCast.com if you'd like show notes, resources as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing, a link to our Discord, or just to say hi. Welcome, everyone. We're here with Kryn Gabbard. And Kryn, before we start, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you and what do you do? Well, thank you, Devin. It's a pleasure to be here. I taught for many years at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. I taught comparative literature, classics, and film studies. And then when I retired from Stony Brook in 2014, I taught for several years in the Jazz Studies program at Columbia. I have written a book called Psychiatry and the Cinema. I've written a couple books on music and film, especially jazz and film. My most recent book was a biography of the great jazz musician and composer Charles Mingus. And I'm currently writing a book about Duke Ellington. Oh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Devin. So great to be here. And congratulations on a great series of broadcasts. Oh, thanks very much. Trouble in Paradise, let's talk about it. As our audience is already aware from our discussions with Tanya and Will, you know, this is a film that's dear to the hearts of many. What about Trouble in Paradise speaks to you that no other movie does? The first time I saw it, which was over 50 years ago when I was in graduate school, it just jumped out at me. There was just something going on that I had never seen in anything before. It was, I was watching it in a, a graduate school course on film comedy. We had been watching Keaton and Chaplin, of course, but suddenly here's Trouble in Paradise from 1932, and it just kind of blew me away. I've always said to people when they ask me, at least for the last 40 years, when people ask me, what's your favorite film? People outside the profession of film studies should always say, will say, what's the greatest film ever made? And for 40 years now, I've been saying Trouble in Paradise. Most of them have never heard of it, but people will say, well, what about Godfather 2? What about Blue Velvet? <laughs> I've been consistent. Maybe 15 years ago, I was very happy when I was sitting at a film conference with a couple of colleagues I really like and admire. Uh, one was a Chuck Wolf, who for many years uh, taught, and I think is still teaching at the University of California at Santa Barbara. And he was a student of Samson Rafelson in the late 1970s when Rafelson was teaching at Columbia. And he said, I've got to tell you an anecdote about Trouble in Paradise. Samson Rafelson, of course, wrote nine films for Lubitsch. He wrote The Smiling Lieutenant, One Hour with You, Broken Lullaby, Trouble in Paradise, of course, The Merry Widow, Angel, Shop Around the Corner, Heaven Can Wait. And in the end of his life, when Lubitsch was making That Lady in Ermine, he was still working with Rafelson. Of course, Lubitsch died before it was finished. And, um, Otto Preminger was the one who, who wrapped that up. Rafelson is born in 1894 in New York City to a Jewish family. He goes to college at the University of Illinois. And while he's there, he sees a show with Al Jolson. Now, Jolson, unlike what is the practice today, Jolson would do his shows in the Winter Garden Theater in New York. They were always hits. 
And then unlike stars today who might move on to another show, he would take that show on the road. So even in Champaign, Illinois, <laughs> you could see Al Jolson on stage. So Ray Wilson is there. He's, he's uh, fascinated, writes this short story called The Day of Atonement. And it's in the Saturday Evening Post. He gets the idea to turn it into a play, which becomes The Jazz Singer, starring Je Georgie Jessel. It's a hit on Broadway in 1926. And then it becomes the possibility for a movie. And as you pointed out before, one of the great structuring absences, shall we say, in the early Hollywood sound career of, uh, of Lubitsch is that he did not direct the jazz singer. It, it, uh, the, what, the Warner Brothers fired him before he could get around to it? He had, uh, he had jumped ship to Paramount at that point. Uh, Rafelson does not get to work with Lubitsch on, on uh, the jazz singer, but he immediately goes to work. And as you pointed out, he writes Broken Lullaby and then moves on to all these, these wonderful comedies. So at the end of his career with Lubitsch, and it's basically the end of his Hollywood career, Rafelson goes off and continues to write plays, which he really thought was going to be his legacy. And uh, if you look at his filmography, it doesn't end with that lady in Ermine. There's maybe another 20 listings, but they're all things like American Playhouse or Matinee Theater, where one of his plays has the, sh the basis for a show, a single shot. There's even an episode of Bus Stop from the early 1960s, which is based on a play uh, by Rachelson. So Immediately after retiring from the Hollywood cinema, he goes back to the University of Illinois where he teaches a course in screenwriting. And uh, there's an article someplace how Hugh Hefner in 1948 took that course. And the, the author of the article tries to make the point that somehow what it was that Hefner got from uh, Rafelson inspired him to go on uh, to make Playboy magazine. At any rate, Late in his life, Rafelson goes to work at Columbia University, and he's teaching this course in screenwriting. And this is back when they had you know, a, a really big program in film studies. Chuck Wolf was in that as a graduate student in that program in the late 1970s. At one point, a student or someone involved with that course discovered a beautifully preserved print of Trouble in Paradise. And working with Rafelson's wife, Dorschka, they set up a surprise screening. So they managed to get, get Rafelson to appear at an auditorium. And there's all of his students and faculty and lots of people involved with the program. And they show Trouble in Paradise. And when it's over, you know, everyone is screaming and yelling. They're loving it. And Rafelson gets up and he says, I owe an apology to everyone in this room. And they're going, what? People are saying, but it's a masterpiece. Every line is perfect, which is, of course, true. <laughs> so, uh, so Ravelson then says, there was a terrible depression going on when I wrote this film. And there's nothing in the film about all the human suffering of that moment. And again, of course, the people say, but the depression is everywhere in that movie. You know, there's even a moment when, when Gaston says, everything will be all right again. Prosperity is just around the corner. Prosperity is just around the corner, which was what, you know, Herbert Hoover was saying in 1932, just before he was out and, uh, 
uh, and uh, Roosevelt uh, was elected for the first time. You also have you have little things like the communists showing up. Yeah, the communists. Yeah. Um, I asked Wolf, I said, well, what was he talking about? How could he possibly want to disavow, you know, what many of us think is the, is the greatest film ever made? And what Wolf said was that Rafelson was blindsided to suddenly see this film after several years at Columbia working with students who were making documentaries, students who were devoted to much more, shall we say, gravitas in the cinema. And when this frivolous thing shows up in that context, he was really taken aback. And of course, this is also part of uh, the fact that he never really thought he'd be remembered for his screenplays. He always thought he'd be remembered for his plays. Uh, one, one little sidelight to that business about Rabelson, the playwright, because he uh, was at Columbia, they have all of his plays in their library. I've taught at Columbia, so I have access to their library. And I went online to their, you know, online card catalog. And sure enough, they're all there, but they're all in storage. If you look at any of those plays by Samson Rippleson, it'll say off-site. So they're in some warehouse in New Jersey, and you have to request them. So, you know, Rippleson, we will always remember him and love him, but it's kind of ironic. He was not the kind of success he had hoped he would be. He kind of reserves his warmest sympathies for uh, Shop Around the Corner. I, I have to disagree with you, Samson. I have to disagree. I think Trouble in Paradise is your greatest work. <laughs> he truly saw himself as a serious dramatist, right? Where someone who was more in touch with the you know intricacies of real, or at least naturalistic, we might call it, human interaction, right? You know, the, the subtleties. And that's part of why he was so simpatico with Lupich. And I think, he, at least as far as I've read his words, he seems to see Trouble in Paradise as a bit of a trifle, right? It's, it's, it's like, you know, it's a confection, which I partially agree. I think it is much more surface level trifling than chop around the corner but you know that's what that's lubich that's the lubich genius right the merry widow is is about as trifling as it gets but there's a darkness underneath that and the darkness doesn't need to exist it's a really good trifle but having both is genius uh there is that degree of gravitas in lubich in general and in trouble in paradise in particular you said something earlier in one of your earlier podcasts about how lubich is not hitchcock hitchcock had to make everything clear. There's no moment in where you're having to struggle to follow. Whereas Lubitsch does ask you to work, you know, and there's a couple things, you know, I've seen this film, I've seen Trouble in Paradise maybe 10 times. And the first couple of times I saw it, I missed stuff, which you, you know, you really have to pay attention to make sense out of it. The first example of something that I missed the first three or four times I saw it is when Madame Collet early on buys that purse, the, the, the purse that's, you know, eventually introduces her uh, to Gaston. She buys that purse. It's 125,000 francs. A few minutes later, when the purse is in the possession of Gaston and, and you know, Lily finds the ad saying, you know, there's an 8,000 franc reward. He pulls out the purse and he looks at it and he says, well, it's worth 40,000. She probably paid 60,000. What if actually paid more than that? Double that. So here is Gaston Bonescu, who can speak multiple languages, who is, you know, always ready to deal with any situation, can talk his way through anything. He can remove a woman's garter without her noticing. But even he has no idea the monumental way, the monumental frivolity of, uh, of someone like Madame Poulet. But, but again, to get back to 
another thing that I missed, which I only really picked up on the last three or four times I saw the film, is that final time we see Kay Francis. And Dastone has showed her the pearls he's stealing. And she says, my gift to her with the compliments of Collet and company. And she smiles. And there is real pathos in that moment. You know, this is a woman whose heart is broken. This is a woman who is really suffering. And I think Lubitsch knew what he was doing. And I think that is why you don't get a reverse shot when we see the back of Gaston. Immediately after she says that, Gaston walks out the door, closes it behind him, and you do not get a reverse shot of Kay Francis. I think that would be too much. I think that because I, you know, he is really moved away in a really dramatic fashion from the tone of the film. And I think that's why you have that kind of joyous, triumphalist ending. Once again, our heroes are in the backseat of a cab, as is so often the case with Lubitsch. And uh, Lily shows she's got the pearls. She shows she's got the purse. And then Dastone, in this kind of phallic thrust, takes a handful of money and shoves it into the purse right in the crotch, right at, right at the crotch of Lily. You know, it, it, you know, and that, that, of course, gets a big laugh. And that really relieves us of that moment, what really has tremendous pathos when you see the way that Madame Collet is responding to the departure of Gaston. And, you know, I, I think I read Herman Weinberg's book years and years ago, and I think that gave me a misunderstanding of things like what we're just talking about. I mean, Weinberg, this is in his book, The Lubitsch Touch. As I recall, he's basically making the case that Lubitsch is saying, don't take life too seriously. Don't take love too seriously. If things don't go well, you know, just deal with it with a bit of class and good humor. And I think you can say, you can definitely say that's the case at the end of, say, The Smiling Lieutenant, where Claudette Colbert hands her man over to the princess. And she does it with grace. And, you know, Claudette Colbert is just wonderful in that sequence. And when she walks out the door and we see her receding the way we see uh, Gaston receding at the end of Trouble in Paradise. But in The Smiling Lieutenant, Colbert holds up her left hand and sort of waves. Uh, you know, so again, there's grace and there's class. And you can see this as just being, don't take it too seriously. You can even argue that, I think, with the ending of One Hour With You. I think, in many ways, the marriage circle is superior to uh, One Hour With You on, on some very significant levels. And I think, you know, there's more gravitas in those characters in the marriage circle than with uh, the ones in, in One Hour With You. I mean, so at the end, yes, it's all a joke. And yes, things work out. And we're kind of relieved to see our, our heroes, you know, Monty Blue and Florence Vidor, once again in the back of a taxi driving off. But that relief we feel is because we really, there was a moment then we really felt they were in trouble. And you really don't get that in uh, One Hour With You. It's just that, just that jokiness just sort of continues throughout. So, yes, you can argue that Lubitsch does that kind of trifle, you know, don't take it too seriously. But I think in Trouble in Paradise, those characters really come to life and there's really a whole lot more depth. It's a movie where even the very minor characters, like you have an uncommonly 
fleshed out Horton and Ruggles pairing. Yes, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> Where, you know, not only do they get a fair amount of screen time, but their uh, dialogue is so dense and laden with little insights in- into how they see themselves, into their own self-deception in really clever ways. You have this overarching framework thematically of, you know, the titular paradise, right? You have Kay Francis's home that represents a sort of almost, it's not quite death, but it's not quite life either. You know, she has cloistered herself off from the troubles of the world, but also the excitement of the world. So when Gaston comes in, it's like this bolt of lightning in her life. But there's this sense, you know, that, you know, that scene where we have, you know, weeks, months, years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the series of shots where the two characters get progressively more obscure in the frame and by the, the end they're silhouettes on a bed. That really implies a sort of stasis, right? That if Gaston takes her up on her offer, you know, which is impossible because of plot reasons, but even if he could, it would be comfortable. It would also be a kind of end of his life. It would be an, an end to his narrative. He's found the endpoint, paradise. And there's a great ambivalence in the movie. It's really playing not only class against class, it's also, you know, fundamentally, I think, about creating meaning in one's life. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that pops up in the interviews with Rafelson is that for Trouble in Paradise, Rafelson and Lubitsch were together five days a week, six hours a day for three months writing this script and hashing out the details. And at one point, Lubitsch would say to him, when they're, if they're having trouble with one section of the script, Lubitsch would say, OK, look. Write it, spell out everything, make it as clunky and obvious as possible. And they would do that as kind of an exercise. And then with that, they would then, okay, now we know what to strip away and to put in there. But again, part of the brilliance of what they did together is the fact that when Gaston has to definitively say to Madame Collet, you know, I'd love to be here. I'd love to be your lover and stay with you, but I can't because there'll be that policeman at the door tomorrow morning. You know, and that is definitive. And even she picks up on that. Even she says, but then there's that terrible policeman who's going to come in along with breakfast. So, you know, that it really lets us off the hook in a sense, because we realize that this has to happen. And that it's not because Gaston is totally immoral and, and totally dishonest, which of course he is, but it makes perfect sense. And it doesn't, it, it is not that as heartbreaking as it could be. It's part of what makes the film so perfectly ambiguous, right? Where if Gaston had in an unforced way chosen either Lily or Collet, we would have an answer to the love triangle. We would know, okay, he loves Lily more. He loves Madame Collet more, you know, and even putting in those terms, I'm missing the point of what Lubitsch is doing here. And by using a plot machination, which is he's going to get arrested. He can't stay with Collet. We're left to wonder who he really wanted to spend his life with. We, we right. don't get the closure of that. No, you, we really don't. Yeah. Yeah, because there's really something about her. But of course, he has to be with Lily in terms of the logic of the film, because they really are perfectly matched. They are at the top of their profession and they understand each other. It's such an interesting case, right, where one of the kind of common refrains that kind of separates out Lubitsch films from other romantic comedies is that in almost any romantic comedy, it's clear who the couple is going to be. Even if it's not clear at the beginning, it's clear by the end. I mean, this is we actually just watched three adaptations of Pride and Prejudice just recently. I mean, that's the romantic comedy template, right? It's very clear in the end that Liz is supposed to be with Mr. Darcy and not Mr. Wickham. Right? Mr. Wickham is a jerk. And in Lawrence Lubitsch films, whatever final configuration that you know ends the film, it's often unclear as to whether that's the 
optimal one, we might say. I'm not clear if Gaston's going to be happier with Lily or Madame Collet in Design for Living. I'm left unsure as to whether the three are going to work it out. In The Merry Widow, I'm left unsure as to whether Danilo and Sonia are actually made for each other or whether they're just two egotists who have chemistry. <laughs> right? Yeah. No, no. I, I, I totally agree. And again, that's that's not typical. I mean, you're right about Pride and Prejudice. There's no, there's no question. And then not to knock Jane Austen, you know, that's a perfect book. <laughs> <Yeah>. Perfect. <laughs> so, uh, Corinne, in your email to me, you mentioned that you had a lot to say about the music in Trouble in Paradise and Lubitsch's use of it. And for our listeners who maybe haven't listened to our Love Me Tonight episode, I'm going to quickly plug that as well to say Leah Jacobs and I went quite deep on Lubitsch's evolving use of music here. That might be some good context for what you're about to say, Corinne. I really think that the music in Trouble in Paradise is a tremendous part of what made this film successful, if not commercially, certainly critically. And, you know, we, uh, as Claudia Gorbman points out in her book, uh, Unheard Melodies, you all read the title, Unheard Melodies. You're not really supposed to notice. It just sort of comes in kind of unconscious. And there's so many moments when that's really happening in this film. The, the music for Trouble in Paradise is by a man named W. Frank Harling, who is not someone who pops up in the books about film music. He's, he's, maybe he'll get one glancing reference uh, in some of, these, some of these books that I've been looking at about film music. But he did over 30 films. He wrote the soundtracks to over 30 films before he got to Trouble in Paradise, he already had done four films with Lubitsch. He wrote the music for Broken Lullaby, One Hour with You, Monte Carlo, and Love Parade. And along the way, in that early pre-1932 period, he also wrote the music for two of the great von Sternberg, uh, Marlene Dietrich films, Blonde Venus and Shanghai Express, which is, is, is fascinating. Later on in his career, he would write the music for Penny Serenade, The Bitter Tea of General Yen. If he's known for anything, W. Frank Harling is known for Beyond the Blue Horizon. Jeanette McDonald sings that in yeah, Monte Carlo. And then when Lubitsch died at, at his funeral in 1947, Jeanette McDonald sang Beyond the Blue Horizon there. So, so that's one thing we know for sure about W. Frank Harling. But what he does in Trouble in Paradise, I would say absolutely typical on one level of the classical Hollywood cinema music tradition. As Carol Flynn points out in a wonderful book called Strange of Utopia, the Hollywood film score really is rooted in late romanticism of the 19th century, particularly Wagner and the light motifs that he would attach to the characters in his operas. And that whole business of associating a character with a specific theme that carries on into the music being written for the early silent film, where you have, you know where there's the orchestra or the cues of the piano sheet, and then when composers come along and start writing the actual music to be heard on the soundtrack, they are straight out of that tradition. Most of the first great Hollywood composers were rooted in that late 19th century, a uh, uh, late romantic. Tradition. In Claudia Gorman's book, An Unheard Melody, she has a whole chapter on Mildred Pierce, where she really susses this out how uh, Max Steiner, who did the music for that film, knew exactly how to introduce a character, how to develop a character using a handful of themes. 
Of course, that's 1945. Mildred Parrish is 1945. And Lubitsch and, and Harling are already doing this in 1932. So let me sort of break it down for you here. The film begins with the song Trouble in Paradise, and it's sung over the opening credits. Most any place can seem to be a paradise While you embrace just the one that you adore Now that song will appear extra-diegetically on the soundtrack the first time that Gaston and Madame Coulet are together. And he's giving her back the purse and they're chatting and they're looking at the bed. And the minute it seems like there's some chemistry between them, you hear that theme, you know, most anyone. Well, here, the orchestral version of that behind them. And that becomes their theme. Almost exclusively, that theme is associated with two of them. We'll hear it in different tempos when things aren't going well between the Gaston and Madame Poulet. You'll hear it in a minor key. There'll be just a little fragment of it here and there, but that's their theme. Okay, that's the Trouble in Paradise theme. Then also early on in the film, maybe five minutes where we're after Gaston has robbed Francois Philibas and he's in his hotel in Venice in his tuxedo and he's very pensive and he's got a cigarette and he's waiting for Lily to arrive in her gondola. And suddenly you begin to hear just faintly this waltz. Da dee da dee. That becomes the theme for Lily and Gaston. We only hear it when they're on the screen. And as in the Trouble in Paradise theme, which is only with Gaston and Madame Collet, it pops up in different keys. It pops up in different tempos. As I say, it could be in a minor key. And that goes on to the end of the film. There's a, there's a third theme that's introduced very early when we have just seen the meeting between Gaston and Lily. We cut to the radio announcer, you know, talking about how Gaston Monescu was robbed the Peace Conference. He took practically everything except Then suddenly the you see the wonderful Tyler Brook. Tyler Brook, we all know from Isn't It Romantic? The, the, the way that song is passed on in Love Me Tonight. He's the writer who takes the cab. Yes, that's the one. That's Tyler Brook. Yeah. He's all over these. He's he's random. He's in The Merry Widow for all of like 15 seconds, too. Uh, yeah, so he's one of those people. He like quit Bissell. You know, he's someone <laughs> that, uh, that no one... No one would care about, but he's just, he seems to be ubiquitous. So the, the third thing I want to talk about just briefly, that moment when he comes on screen in front of the radio mic and he says, it's not how you look, it's not what you say, it's how you smell. And then every time I've seen this movie with an audience, there's a big laugh when he suddenly breaks into song. Calais, Calais, Calais and Company are makers of the best That tune appears especially when we're in the boardroom, we, we assume it's the board of directors with C. Aubrey Smith, another uh, great performance, another fleshed out character, you know, so, so distinguishes his film. We hear a little bit of that Cole and Company. And we hear all three of those themes at the very end. And again, I think this is part of what I was saying earlier about how we have to have a kind of joyous 
celebratory finale to help people forget the sufferings of the K. Francis character. So in that last scene with Lily and Gaston in the taxi, you hear, first of all, their love theme. But this time it's not a waltz, it's in 4-4 time. I think it's the only time in the film you hear that tune in 4-4 time, which I, which, you know, there's some, I'm not a musicologist, but if you have musicologists in your audience who want to tell me what it means to convert a waltz to 4-4 for that moment, I'd love to, you know, I'm, I'm listening. So we hear a few bars of their love theme. Then we hear a few bars of the, of the Coley and Company theme. which, again, we're hearing for the first time without Kay Francis on the screen. And then a little bit at the end of Trouble in Paradise theme. Those, all three of those themes reappear just briefly for just a few bars each as the film comes to an end. Okay, here's, here's where I really want to make the case for uh, Harling and Lubitsch doing genius work together. There's a fourth theme that pops up that is also introduced early on, and that's the garbage man singing O Solo Mio, carrying his can over to his garbage gondola and dumping the garbage in while he's singing O Solo Mio. So that becomes another major theme. And I think the use of that is absolutely brilliant. And it's got to be Lubitsch. It's got to be Lubitsch sitting with Harling and saying, I know what I want here, right? So we first hear the theme you know, non-diegetically on the soundtrack when the, the major, you know, the Charles Rutgers character and uh, Francois, Edward Everett Horton, are sitting together. And as is often the case, they're playing, there's a little, you know, emotional games with each other. And the, the major is giving the silent treatment to Francois. And Francois says, for God's sake, man, say something. And Ruggles says, tonsils. And then you hear, da, 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 da. Tonsils. Big orchestral flourish. So right away, it's clear that we are going to associate Francois with Venice and the humiliation of being robbed by a man who says, I want to see your tonsils, okay? Now, there's several places where that same music appears. It's at the very end, you know, at the party. There's that party scene before Mariette rushes out to confront Gaston, where Ruggles says, the major says to Francois, you know, the first time I met him, I thought he was a doctor. And then you hear, da, 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 da. There's another scene in the middle where Francois is still trying to figure out where he knows Gaston from, and he sees uh, an ashtray that is a perfect replication of a gondola, including with a little gondolier and an oar on the ashtray, the miniature. And we hear da, 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 da. But Francois doesn't make the connection just yet. It's, it's later. But there's a fourth example. I, I, I wish I knew just how much 
Lubitsch and Harling had worked on this. And that's before the party scene at the major's house where he's got a stack of place cards and he's walking around the table. And on the top, he's got Madame Coulet, puts her right there. Then the next card in the stack is the major. And he pulls that out and puts it right next to her. And then the third card in the stack is Francois. And Ruggles does kind of a double take and storms off to the end of the table to put the card down while we hear, and I think we even hear a slight development of that. All of this is standard Hollywood practice. All of it is deeply rooted in a late romantic tradition, the Wagner leitmotif. I just think what you're hearing here and the way Lubitsch and Harling have put the music together is really extraordinary. And what, one of the other things that makes this film so, so significant. One of the common themes of this podcast is, hey, these innovations happened before you think they did. And it is interesting how often Max Steiner uh, with his King Kong score gets credit for, if you Google Max Steiner King Kong, try it audience, you'll get numerous articles that say this film established the grammar for film music. You know, this film invented the, you know, it brought Wagner to Hollywood, you know, that sort of thing. And I think this does show that. I oh, know there were, there were precedents. Yeah. You know, and it makes me almost want to go back and see if I can find the other 30 films that Frank Harling did before <laughs> Trouble in Paradise to see how much of that's going on. Trouble in Paradise does feel like a real corner turned in that for Lubitsch, where it's, as Lid Jacob said in a few episodes ago, uh, it's where he started really adapting his innovations from his musicals to the non-musical form and you know many would say perfected them a lot of the things you know the weaving in of themes that just come with a musical right like he was doing that in love parade just limited to the musical numbers and you can see that increasingly so in monte carlo and smiling lieutenant and one hour with you and then with this he's cut out the musical numbers but he has reappropriated the music for use throughout the film in so many different varied ways absolutely yeah and there's a couple of other themes i haven't even, i haven't talked about if you go back and you listen to the soundtrack there's your da-da-da-da-da-da-da. When there's danger, you know, that theme also, it, it pops up several times. So, no, it's, it's, uh, it's a beautiful score, I gotta say. It's interesting, too, how the kind of played-through style that would become more common later wasn't really here at this point, right? Where the music comes in at very specific points with a very specific purpose each time. It's it's never just there to romanticize the scene. It's never there for wallpaper. It begins and ends, and sometimes it overlaps with the dialogue. Usually it doesn't. You know, oftentimes it's these little hits, right? Like every time the scene associated with the... Uh, tonsils is brought up. It's a very short little sting. It's so much of what commonly is attributed to, you know, only starting in 1941 or whatever. Um, you know, Citizen Kane was the first movie. Uh, it was already That's here right. and, and, you know, in ample supply. Oh, oh, speaking of Citizen Kane, one more thing about the music, the opera that Madame Coulet attends, uh, you know, with the major of her purse is stolen. You know, we get maybe, what, 90 seconds of that opera, mm -hmm. and it's just ridiculous, you know, I love you, I love you, I hate you, I hate you, and then there's she like, hates she hates him, she hates him. <laughs> it's just this wonderful parody of an opera, and this anticipates Citizen Kane by 10 years, you know, where Bernard Herrmann has written, you know, maybe 30 seconds of an opera, I think it's called Salambo. It's, it's brilliant, but 
it's made to be taken totally seriously. It's not a parody of opera. It really, you know, Herman really knows his musical scores and musical history well enough to write something that really could have been an opera and really could have been sort of a, a, a goal for Susan Alexander, who's not quite up to it. But here you have the same thing 10 years earlier, and it's just a delightful parody. There's so many rhymes here where Lubitsch had already done a couple of operatic parodies and especially in Monte Carlo, but to a much smaller degree in Love Parade. This feels like the perfect version of that, where in, for example, in Monte Carlo, the, the opera itself is not that funny. It's Jack Buchanan torturing Jeanette McDonald with the what will happen in the opera. That's the funny part. But in this, it's so dense because the opera is funny. The writing in the opera is funny. The, the things that happen while the opera is going on are funny. It's just Lubitsch taking full advantage of every avenue he can to densify the film's comedy. That scene is even more wonderful because, you know, even though the opera is totally silly, when uh, Madame Collet and the major are talking, and, and there's this patron who looks up very indignantly to shush them. But the idea that there is someone in the audience who's taking this opera so seriously that he's willing to shush these, these obnoxious aristocrats up there in the opera boxes. And he has a point. The two aristocrats are breaking one of Lubitsch's cardinal rules, which is... Manners. <laughs> right? Manners matter in Lubitsch land and he, they're breaking manners. So I'm with the I'm with the patron. Me too. On a moral level, you know, I mean, on a Lubitsch level. <laughs> Gaston, Gaston might be a thief. He might be immoral. He might be a horrible person, but he is a hero in Lubitsch land because he knows the manners. Yes. He doesn't interrupt the opera. You know, and uh, I have to say, you mentioned uh, Bill Paul. I think we were talking off mic about Bill Paul, who's a really good friend of mine. I've known him for years. Uh, you know, he wrote this wonderful book on Lubitsch. But there's one thing he says that I have to argue with him about, where he says that when you get to, to, to be or not to be, that the evil, the spy, Professor Seletsky, and he says that he is the equivalent of Gaston Monescu, that this is the same character type that Lubitsch always works with. And I just, I just don't see it. I just don't think Seletsky is as nearly as charming as Herbert Marshall, uh, in spite of his uh, wooden leg. They have mechanical alignment. They're both essentially pretending to a class in which they do not belong, right? Yeah. Where you have Seletsky, who is pretending to be this, like, this debonair man of culture. You're right. When, in fact, he is a fairly based Nazi who doesn't even know who Maria Tura is. <laughs> yeah. Is that man cultured? No. And so th there is some alignment there, but... I'd, I'd rather classify it as like a, a rhyme among Lubitsch's kind of deceitful characters. Belinsky in Clooney Brown is actually quite similar to both of them. And then Belinsky almost feels like a fusion where he is the heroic version of Selesky. He's a spy on the side of freedom fighting, but more importantly, he's a spy on the side of good living. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. He yeah. has his priorities straight in life. He knows that, hey, if I can just settle down with this nice lost lady and we can start a family and I can write some novels in America, that's just as good as fighting the Nazis anyways. <laughs> why Why hurry? <laughs> there you go. I think Lubitsch loves his variations on a type where it's it's tough to draw one-to-one -one parallels between any two of his characters unless they're played by Maurice, in which case there's kind of <laughs> the same person. The same, yeah. <laughs> I, I love what you said about Maurice, that, that his, his superpower is he's the most charming man who's ever lived. <laughs> and Lubitsch really does take advantage of that. But it's just a thought I had when I was watching all these Lubitsch films in preparation for this interview. There's so many great lines in Trouble in Paradise. You know, I would say, Every other line is memorable. I mean, just, just and just this last time through, I wrote down what I think is, uh, you know, uh, absolutely brilliant. This is when uh, Lily is saying to Gaston, you know, you are a crook. I want you as a crook. 
I love you as a crook. I worship you as a crook. Steal, swindle, rob. Oh, but don't become one of those useless, good for nothing. <laughs> There's just so many great lines like that. I even think one of the great lines is after Madame Coulet has been told about tonsils, the real truth about Gaston, and she goes running out to her cab, the major and Francois running after her, you know, but Mariette, Mariette, as she's about to drive off, she turns and says, I had a lovely time. <laughs> I mean, even that, I think, is brilliant. But there's just nothing in any of these films, the constant appearance of wonderful, funny lines that fit perfectly that it just characterizes film throughout. When I was throwing together the trailer for the season, I think Trouble in Paradise was the most overrepresented movie in my calling of clips. What I do when I make the trailer is I is I just I go through the films, I just pull every memorable line. Trouble in Paradise I got like 30. Um, it was really, yeah. it's really, I mean, <laughs> really and there's so many, I wish I, I wish I could have put in the, uh, there's more sex appeal coming at the end of the month thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> there's so many, um, or the, you know, the, that wonderful exchange between Ruggles and Horton where they're just comparing themselves as if they were like two yeah. virile he's men. A, he's the kind of, he's the kind of man women marry. And, yeah, then, exactly. and then the major who was repeatedly proposed to marry at says, I prefer to take my pleasure, you know, and leave. The, the classic uh, Lubitsch characters saying one thing and doing the opposite immediately. <laughs> yeah. I, I hadn't done this when I recorded the other two episodes in Trouble in Paradise, but I can talk about it now. I screened it with a group of first or second year students. I was called into guest lecture for um, a colleague of mine at the University of British Columbia's class. I, you know, gratuitously said, I want to do a talk on free code. She went, sure. And so I did a little talk on free code cinema. And then I showed Trouble in Paradise, which was a decision I really agonized over because there's so many options. I mean, I could have easily shown uh, jewel robbery or so. so I chose Trouble in Paradise because I think that's the maybe the best one and the one I just wanted to show people. And to my relief, this audience of students, almost none of them who had even heard of the term free code two hours earlier, just seemed to love the film. They would like all the laugh lines got huge laughs. The response was terrific. So I think this is a film that clearly its power in every way feels completely undiminished after when we release this episode, it'll be 92 years. Oh my God. Uh, I, I never thought of that. You know, it's funny uh, about these pre-code films. There was an article I read somewhere and I wish I can remember who wrote it, but he had gone to the film forum, you know, the film forum. I live here in, you know, in Manhattan and the film forum for many years has been doing these pre-code series and they'll show like you know, 12 uh, pre-code films. And so this young writer who obviously like your students was not really familiar with that. And he saw like, you know, several of these uh, pre-code films one after the other. And he said they were incoherent because, you know, we, we have come to accept, you know, a certain uh, degree of censorship up until very recently. I just, I just went to see um, poor things, poor things. Yeah. You know, now that film has got a lot of sex uh, and a lot of nudity. But, you know, there's all those years of cinema where we just realize you don't get that. And it's not just the nudity. It's the suggestion of premarital sex. It's you know, the long list of, you know, and getting getting away with crimes. Divorce. Stealing and, and not being punished. You know, in, in our very first episode, Lauren referred to the Weimar era as capturing our imagination because 
uh, it burned so brightly in comparison to what was to come. I mean, I, we cannot compare the Hayes office to the National Socialist Party of Germany. But this is yet another example where, you know, the pre-code era, part of why it burned so bright is because we have something to compare it against. And that's the 25 years of cinema that followed. The 25 years where cinema was in many ways infantilized. We are in, in, in a time when there are certain segments of cinephiles, I might say, who have a kind of nostalgia for that period, right? Of that 25 years when you couldn't do certain things in cinema. And I think the pre-code era really shows that it wasn't that the strictures of the Hayes Code uh, meant that filmmakers got clever. Clearly, you could be clever and have innuendo and inference before that. Lubitsch did that better than anyone ever has in this movie. Uh, my, my favorite example outside of Lubitsch is that great line in His Girl Friday, you know, that now we're in the code and, and Howard Hawks is trying to get around it. So there's that moment when, I think it's Rosalind Russell asked Cary Grant, what was the name of the mayor's wife? And Cary Grant says, you mean the one with the water on it? That one Wow, I mean... <laughs> the censor didn't catch it. <laughs> um, my favorite, I mean, this is a very obvious one, but I don't think I'll ever I'll ever get quite the kick out of any film that I got with the ending of North Northwest. Yes, of course, the train, the train, the phallic the, train. The train and, or, I mean, that whole film is is a masterclass in, in dodging really the is. censors. Well, yeah, yeah. my favorite detail of that is to pass off the train as even more acceptable. They have that very clumsily ADR'd line where uh, Cary Grant says, come along, Mrs. Thornhill. So we have established with the laziest possible way that they are married now and are allowed to consummate it. <laughs> it it's perfect. Absolutely. And so thank you so much for doing this. This has been a terrific conversation. It's my pleasure, Devin. Next week, Bron Breiter joins us to discuss If I Had a Million. Head over to ErnstCast.com for information as to where you might find the films we'll be discussing this season and other resources such as show notes and our Discord server. How Would Lubitsch Do It is a production of Moving Image Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you happen to use. It helps other people find our podcast and therefore find Ernst Lubitsch. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and tsleil peoples. 